Welcome to episode 61 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we explore the themes of well-being and sustainability in real estate and hospitality. I'm your host, Matt Morley, founder of Biophilico Wellness Real Estate. And this week, I'm in Athens, talking to the London-based Fanos Hadjikiriaku. He's the co-founder and CEO of 2050 Materials. It's an online database of sustainable building materials and increasingly intelligent tools that help architects and designers in their efforts to create low-carbon circular buildings and interiors. In our conversation, we discuss the genesis of the company, the unmet need it aims to address and the problem it's trying to solve, things like toxic building materials and those that are especially damaging to the environment when viewed from a full life cycle perspective. So that's considering its extraction, the use phase, and then disposal options at the end of its life. So they're they're essentially tackling that problem and presenting a range of options. We also cover some of the many sustainable certification systems out there for building products, as well as how artificial intelligence could start to leverage this type of online database to propose sustainable, healthy solutions to architects and designers in the not too distant future. So this is a really kind of future gazing uh, perspective, but it's real and it's happening right now. So check out 2050-materials.com while you're listening along. You can find me at biophilico.com as always. Now let's talk sustainable materials. Listen, first of all, thank you for making the time to join us today on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you. Why don't we talk a little bit about the, the genesis of, of the business? So how did 2050 Materials start as, as an idea? And what's that journey been like from the initial concept through to where you're at today, sort of a year or a year and a half into starting this new business? Um. Yeah, great. So I guess that goes back a little bit to my background. So I'm an engineer by training, and I would say I'm a, very much a data person in my brain. My brain works thinking about data. And I've been, uh, I was working basically in the financial sector, helping investors align their portfolios with different climate strategies and essentially giving them different kinds of risk data that was focusing on climate change focused risk. And the whole idea behind 2050 Materials started when I was working with a few very large real estate investors who started talking about supply chains and supply chain emissions and embodied carbon in the portfolios and in the buildings they own. And uh, I come from a family of architects and people working in materials distribution. So that kind of sparked my interest because kind of my, my background and my professional background were, were meeting. And basically what I figured out very quickly is that what investors were starting to ask for and talk about, which is everything related to supply chain and material impact, is something that the people actually on the ground, so the designers, the contractors, the building material suppliers, simply did not have the right data to actually deliver on. So I thought that's, first of all, a big problem because it's an issue that needs to be fixed. But secondly, of course, a big opportunity to actually try to fill that gap with a solution. So that's what sparked the the interest behind 2050 materials. And I guess the last part is I I generally have an affinity for innovation within the material sector. I just think it's very cool when you see a new material that you can actually touch and feel and there's a story behind where it comes from and what what it's been made of and also if you can add 
the impact data to it. And that for me makes it very interesting. So let's look at that because obviously on one level, what you've developed and are developing is if you like a database of materials that for someone like me, who's involved in real estate, primarily interiors, less in the construction side, but let's say in the sort of interior fit out, there's a constant search for new innovative materials that not only look good and fit into a particular space that maybe we're trying to create or propose to a developer, but also that are doing some good or uncertainly doing less harm to the environment. But there's another level to all of this is from what I can see. It's a bit more than just becoming a, an online collection of materials, right? There's a there's an extra depth to it that I think is really where it starts getting interesting. So can you, can you talk to us about about those calculations and about that sort of extra level of detail that you're able to get into around the embodied carbon and the impact of the materials? Yeah, sure. Um, well, everything, let's just, let's start from the assumption that we need to transition to a low carbon economy and to a climate neutral economy. And the construction sector, whether you're an interior designer or an architect or just work in the built environment, the impact your work has is actually massive. And our thesis at 2050 and my personal thesis, if you like, is that data is the key to actually getting to a stage where we are designing and eventually building buildings in line with the climate emergency. Now, the very interesting thing about this space is that there's an abundance of data that shows impacts of specific products and materials in the in the sector. The problem is that that kind of data is all around the internet, usually in PDFs, and usually in a format that's very, very technical. So it's usually what's called a lifecycle assessment or an environmental product declaration that states these kind of values. And unfortunately, the the assessment and the output of these kind of uh, these kind of reports are meant to be read by a specialist in the sector. And what the reality is is you need designers and architects who are not specialists in the sectors to still be able to access and understand that data. So something that's often um, let's say a misconception of a lot of people when they land on our platform is that we do a lot of assessment of existing uh, existing products. In fact, all that we do at this point, at least, is we gather existing data from different sources. We digitize it so that it's actually accessible on the platform and you don't have to look through thousands of PDF files to extract the information you need. And then finally, we, and probably most importantly, we actually simplify it to the extent that it keeps its accuracy, but it's actually understandable by a non-specialist. So what that means is that we filter out the 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 detail that is probably unnecessary to most designers and architects so that we quickly give them the one, two, or three numbers they need in order to make an assessment, and we put that at the forefront of the platform. Just as a note, I, I would say I'm totally on board with that approach. I think there's absolutely no issues in relying on established third-party certification systems, whether it's like an environmental product declaration or a healthy product declaration or something like the, the Declare Red List or the <clears throat> Cradle to Cradle, for example. You know, those, those are like the gold standards. And when, when you have a little bit of knowledge about this space, um, then you know you're you're really respectful of those certifications, and I think you can just sort of leverage that, right? You're standing on their shoulders, and that's a very comfortable position in the sense. Like I think that it, it makes 
total sense what you're describing. So as I understand it, then your your users are not necessarily sustainability uh, consultants or people who are really well informed on this space. They might you're trying to make it accessible to people who perhaps recognize that they need to align with those values or perhaps are involved in a project that has certain uh, guidelines or, or targets around the types of materials and sustainability certifications, right? So in a sense, kind of bridging the gap between the specialists and, and the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, what, we, what we always say is that we are trying to democratize these kind of sustainability assessments. And that's, that's exactly pointing to the fact that, yes, we do have sustainability consultants and specialists using the platform, but what we are building the platform for or the person who, or the stakeholder we're building the platform for is actually the average designer, architect, contractor who is having conversations with a customer or with a colleague around sustainability. And they need to start understanding this kind of data without going back to university and getting a degree in this. It's interesting. You know, you, if, if you tried to do this five years ago, 10 years ago, you probably wouldn't have had quite so many materials, right? So it's, it's a sign of where the industry is at now that you're able to have such a wide collection. I think it's, it's the right time because it's, it is now becoming, you know, the choice is quite uh, expansive and it's becoming actually sometimes harder to, to filter through that. But why don't we take a step back because I understand that perhaps not everyone would quite understand the context, which is that there are unhealthy versions of unsustainable materials going into our built environment, both on the construction and in the interior fit out. So from your perspective on the inside of this industry, like what are the main dangers there? And what are, what are we, what are you battling against by presenting these more sustainable and healthy materials? Like what's the problem here with the unhealthy buildings? Mm. Um, that's an interesting question. So I would say, let's look at human health first. When it comes to coming into contact with harmful substances and pollutants, we actually come into contact with those in our daily lives more frequently than we realize. So that might be from building insulation that's, uh, that's packed with flame retardants to chemicals in our food packaging. It might be wet paint that's emitting uh, <clears throat> what's called VOC, so volatile organic compounds. So all of these things actually contribute or can contribute negatively to human health and can cause things like asthma and, and a bunch of other health issues. So there's definitely, there's definitely a, let's say, a very imminent health issue that is fixed when you start looking at more sustainable products. But I would say that a big driver of health is also just global health and looking at climate, climate issues. So I would say that, yes, in the short term, we want to avoid, for example, VOC emissions in our buildings because we, we don't want to have respiratory diseases. In the long term, and it's not even that long term, if we don't stop emitting as much carbon from uh, the construction industry, then we, all of our lives, I believe, will be impacted from climate impact. So I would split the two things into, let's say, direct uh, human health today and then long-term health for us, for our kids, for, for basically everyone who is living uh, on it's, the, a, on the earth. It's, it's a very fair point, you know, green and healthy places. It's the name of the podcast. And, and I think that connection between green as in good for the planet and healthy, good for us, or in this case, 
good for people spending time in a space, you know, that, that connection and, and how those two, the yin and the yang interact, I think is, mm-hmm. is fundamental to understanding this whole space. Now, do you think there's, is there an element of perhaps sustainability uh, being more applicable to the building materials themselves, just in terms of the, the, the quantities involved for uh, concrete and steel, for example, versus say the interior fit out where perhaps it's more to do with health or is that, is that dichotomy um, too generalist? Um, I think traditionally, you know, I think concrete and steel is obviously the two materials that kind of get the spotlight, especially when we're talking about carbon emissions. And that's because the industry as a whole is producing a lot of carbon emissions. Um, so if you look at a building, it's a it's an interesting case study, actually, because if you look at the building's materials, you would see that, yes, most of the carbon emissions of a new building is in the foundation, in the frame. So things that contain usually carbon, uh, usually concrete and, and steel and aluminum. Um, unfortunately, I can't quite say that the fit out aspect doesn't contribute to emissions. So if you actually look at the specific time span, let's say, 50 years of a commercial uh, building that posts offices, say, in central London. The reality is that the, the fit-out, the change of fit-outs and the frequency of change of fit-outs actually can cause up to four times the emissions of the, of the envelope of the building. So if you take, for example, an office in central London that has new desks, new chairs, new cabinets, new flooring every, let's say, two to six years, which is the average time of, uh, of fit-out change, then all of those emissions related to the products and the materials that go into the, the interiors are actually much larger than the building itself. And of course, all of this has, has a certain assumption. So if we were to reuse a lot of those products, then of course we would reduce the impact. But as it stands today, where most of those things are either thrown in the landfill or, or let's say downcycled to a very big extent, Fit-outs are massively important. Uh, so I know it's not a, an extremely helpful answer because it might it would be nicer if we could focus on a couple of uh, a couple of sectors. But I think what this kind of research is starting to show is truly, if you work in the built environment, whether you are doing fit-outs or interior design of residential projects, or you're a structural engineer or anything else, your work really matters. Like it really matters to be able to to have access to this kind of information and to do your part in reducing emissions. I find at some point it becomes more about your values or the values of your business and what you're trying to, to do with your work that um, pushes pushes one, a designer or someone working in this space to consider both equally. And sometimes there are decisions to be made. Maybe you know one material is a bit, a bit better for the planet and not quite so good for the human health or vice versa. Yeah. It can often be quite complicated, and I think that's why platforms and software such as what you've developed is is important. So at, at the next level of detail then, when we're actually on the website looking into some of these materials, doing our research, how are you helping users to kind of make some calculations beyond just, oh, that's a you know green certified material, but then in terms of its actual impact once it's applied in terms of the quantities and the scale and the timelines, where it's coming from, deliveries from, uh, you know, if it's coming from China, it's very different to if it's coming from London, if the project's in London, right? So in terms of those details, is, is there a way you're able to help your users to factor those equ- into, the, into the equation? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it, your question comes at a good timing because we've launched a tool to do a lot of the things you just mentioned very recently. Uh, and, and users, you know, they can trial it and, and try it out for free to start with. Essentially, what, what this kind of tool allows you to do is get anything that you would find on the library and make a list of it. And this can be done at any stage of the design process. So it can be done really early stage where you're not really thinking yet about designs and quantities and you just want to understand more or less what it mean, what, what a forecasted footprint of my building would mean. It can also be done once you have a bill of quantities and you really have a detailed list of everything you're about to procure. Uh, what we are doing is we collect the data of the products that are on the library within this tool once you've selected it as a user. And we show, of course, the total carbon footprint as well as some numbers like the embodied carbon per meter squared of gross internal area and do some comparisons of that number to industry benchmark as well as some of the recommended numbers in the, in the industry. Uh, we actually go a step beyond just focusing on carbon. We calculate currently a couple of circularity metrics like the weighted recycled content in the products that you're uh, selecting and the, and the recyclable content. So kind of how much of the products and the materials that you're specifying may actually be possible to recycle or reuse at the end of life. Um, and I guess one thing that's, that became important when we were developing this tool uh, with a few large uh, offices is we, we initially were thinking that designers will use this tool solely based on actual products that are available in the market. So meaning, you know, X brick by this kind of supplier or this kind of manufacturer. Uh, what we've developed now is we've developed an extra layer where it's generic data for a specific uh, type of product or type of material. So something that says, for example, a clay brick from the UK without necessarily specifying who the manufacturer is. So that kind of gives a workflow that allows you to, if you're starting by just considering materials in the beginning, you can choose your materials. And then once you get into the specification process, or if you want to see whether there is an applicable product in your area um, to actually go into the product uh, selection process. Um, yeah, and one thing I did not mention, uh, but you did actually in your question is, of course, the impacts that we show, uh, you know, they show the manufacturing emissions of the product. So what's in life cycle assessment terms is called the A1 to A3 life cycle stages. But the interesting thing about setting a platform like the one we have is we have the project location and we have the manufacturing location of each of those products in the library, which means that we can quite accurately calculate what the estimated carbon emissions are of transporting those materials. So one of the things that you can do in the tool is you can pick a bunch of products from the, from the platform that are, let's say, from China for a London project, and you'll see in the breakdown of emissions per category that the transportation emissions exceed everything else versus selecting local materials. And I think there's an interesting opportunity there to see, you know, what kind of products maybe does make sense to ship from a little bit further away, uh, even though they might not be available locally versus other ones, which, of course, would outweigh the benefits. For anyone who's who's done a project before with a sustainability or a, or a healthy uh, materials component to it, you know, 
the reality is this, this, this type of detailed conversation almost about every material and it becomes a major headache pretty quickly because you're constantly evaluating or trying to get to this type of information about not just where material is from, how it was produced, the impact of it getting, extracting it in its raw format, then in terms of the manufacturing and production, then the transport and its end of life, as well as its in-use phase. And combining all of that is really complicated because it's just, you're trying to move fast, you've got client pressure. And so I think for anyone who's perhaps, you know, feeling uh, frustrated or, or overwhelmed by uh, this amount of information, you know, it's platforms like this, like your library that, that help ease that pain and i think that's what i what i see here which is it's very easy to be drowned in in the information and um we need to make decisions as quickly as possible once the project starts there's just you know there's no time to lose yeah, and i think you're you're helping to smooth that process and that that's really where i see the um the, the sort of main benefit in terms of using this so once you're once you're building in the library like what process are you using to to screen or to filter materials what are you looking for as a sort of oh that's suitable or that's not suitable have you got your own internal benchmarks in terms of where you do or don't accept the material uh, that's a really interesting question so first of all I, I guess we live in a constant state of research within 2050 so we are always on the lookout for new uh, new products new materials especially when it when they come from smaller companies that are just popping up, whether it's a startup or a company that's been operating for a few years and we just have not seen it before. Um, but having said that, there's a very important point to be made about how we work. So we do not police what kind of product or manufacturer makes it on the platform. We actually want to have as many products as possible uh, uh, appearing there. And we don't have a specific uh, requirement for products to get on the platform. What we enforce as a, as a library, as a platform, is that there needs to be some level of uh, documentation that provides transparency on the impact of the product. So if you go to a library, you can look up concrete and you'll find very heavily emitting concrete products and concrete manufacturers. We want to have these products. We understand the sector, at least for now, still needs a lot of these products. What we ensure is we essentially put transparency over some, some abstract assessment of what is a sustainable material or not, because there are no sustainable materials, in my opinion. There are materials that are suitable and can generate a sustainable design, and there's materials that are non-suitable, and the specific data related to each material does not necessarily give the answer to that. So... In short, anything can land on the platform. What we ensure when we onboard the product is that there is some level of, tra of transparency related to the impact that the material or the product is causing. That sounds like a very pragmatic and practical approach. So some degree of um, thinking on the, uh, on the part of the user is still uh, recommended. You know, we're still going through that mental process of of evaluating and, and, and arbitrage, right? Trying to decide yeah. which which one is the best in this case, and it may not be the most sustainable, as you say. Yeah, I, I guess that's um, that's one of the things that initially, you know, you start and you are very ambitious that you'll give a, a 
the perfect answer to everyone and point them to exactly the one thing and they don't have to spend any time thinking. Um, quite honestly, we very early, this, very early on, we decided, you know, the specialists are the designers, they are the architects, they know how to do the research to find the right kind of product or material. So we are not trying to replace their, their specialization and the work they know how to do. What we're trying to do is replace a process that would currently take something close to three or four or five hours to compare a few products to something they can do with essentially 10 clicks within two minutes. Hmm. And is the model, is the business model going forward then, is it going to eventually be some kind of a paywall so that you'd, you'd pay for access to the materials or the material suppliers, manufacturers paying to be listed? How do you, how do you set things up from a commercial perspective? Yeah. So from a commercial perspective, um, we essentially list, uh, the way that we list products is, is an important uh, point as well. So we partner with essentially every certification body that is out there that certifies building material products um, and furniture and all of that. Uh, and we onboard the basic data that these certification bodies have. So out of, so we populate the platform even without charging anyone really. So it's free for designers, it's free for suppliers. We currently do charge and work with suppliers when they want to have access to those pages to enhance them, to add data sheets, to add better pictures, to add more technical information that would help a designer actually finalize a specification or a procurement decision. So that's currently how we work. Um, on the project side of things, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's a couple of projects that you can create as a user for free now, but that's uh, going forward something that we would like to charge on a per project basis, obviously as clients and regulators demand these kind of reports. That makes sense. Okay, and looking forward then to the next, say, five to 10 years, uh, where are you seeing this industry around healthy and sustainable materials evolving? Like, what are the main sort of trends that you can see taking place that you expect to continue over the next five years or so? Um, yeah, so I, I've said this a couple of times. I think uh, for us, you know, the key to doing, to moving towards a direction of a climate neutral construction sector and, and design sector is the data. And that's why we've had so much focus on the data. I mean, moving forward, I think what's really interesting about data is we are starting to have some pretty amazing stuff that's happening on, on the AI front and on the generative design front. So I think that more and more we're starting to see solutions that can make suggestions and generate designs for architects and for interior designers that would allow them to meet certain goals. Uh, and again, I don't think we'll, we, I, I don't see a scenario where architects are no longer needed or anything like that. I think this kind of doomsday um, thinking is really not uh, something I agree with. What I see is similar to all of the hype that's happening right now with ChatGPT, where you ask it questions and you can have it give you a lot of suggestions. An architect can have very specific tools where they say, I'm trying to achieve uh, a net zero building in central London for this kind of client, and it needs these XYZ specifications. And then a tool would be able to give you five different scenarios of designs, material products that would actually allow you to get there. And then again, it's up to you as a designer, as a specialist to kind of do the next step and, uh, and move from there. So I personally think that 
data alongside the whole uh, AI revolution that's happening right now is going to open amazing doors and something that to the mission that we have as 2050 of democratizing these kind of assessments and understanding very much uh, contributes to. Yeah, that's a big idea. I like that one. And in terms of how the business evolves over the next 12 months, 24 months, like what's the, uh, is it additional functionality expanding the, the, the depth and breadth of the library of materials? Like what are you working on this next year? Yeah, so we have, um, we are constantly working on onboarding more products. So currently we are testing a very big push, which will expand our database to include almost every product that has an EPD uh, globally. So that kind of does a big jump from around 4,000 products to something like 50,000 products. So from a library perspective, we expect to have something in the next couple of months that is much more complete and and can cover actually a lot more markets than the UK, which we've been focusing on. Um, and then on the product development side, we have some really exciting uh, um, features and a product pipeline around the projects tool. So uh, currently you are able to select, uh, you know, individual materials and make a list of your, uh, of your materials that make up your projects. We're very much moving towards the direction of allowing allowing people to create assemblies and see within a specific assembly what is best and then uh, allow them also to have some uh, functionality of of saving their own assemblies because a lot of designers, architects, they reuse a lot of the designs they've done. So our goal is to move towards a direction where you can actually start building your internal library of systems and assemblies that you're able to very quickly uh, build projects with and also get quick assessments. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Well, I'll be, I'll be very happy to watch as you evolve over the next year and hopefully five or 10 years growing the business. So listen, thanks so much for your time. Where can people find out more about the business? Where you, what social media are you engaging with at the moment? Yeah, thank, thanks a lot also for the time. Uh, people can just search for 2050 Materials on Google, on LinkedIn. We're very active on LinkedIn with uh, content and educational um, uh, articles and all of that stuff. Uh, and then the platform is is easily accessible and free on app.2050-materials.com. I'll include the links in the show notes. Thanks again. Cool. Thanks a lot, man.